I've picked uh, a different type of sermon. We have many, this week we have been uh, talking a lot about doctrine and sometimes delving into great things and other things are inspirational. And this sermon is, is designed to be inspirational this morning. A little bit, I want to talk about how we view God. You know, whenever we view people in, in, this, in this life, we have a tendency to treat them as if they are just temporal friends, acquaintances in this world, and not as brothers and sisters and mothers, not as indeed they are the family of God. And so we have a this temptation to walk by sight instead of by faith. And the Bible tells us we need to focus and walk by faith and not by sight. We need to lay up treasures in heaven. If we've been raised up with Christ, Colossians 3, not things that are here on the earth. For the things which are on the earth, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 tell us, are temporal and they're not eternal. And so there's a lot of times our focus, the way we just generally live, that needs to be refocused. We need to sometimes check what we're looking at, what affects us, how if our sight, if we're too short-sighted or not. And so this morning, I want to talk about making God in man's image. We want to look at the passage, Romans 1, verse 18 through 25. Please read along with us in whatever translation that you have. We're going to be looking at this passage because he tells us that when we don't view things properly, they get skewed and they mess up and they begin to justify sin. And that, that's bad whenever a worldview causes us part of our spiritual problems. But starting in verse 18, and I'm reading from New American Standard, here it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, this is the closest the Bible gets to what you call the ontological argument. That is, God exists because everybody can think of him. I might challenge you and say, think of something that doesn't exist. And if you tried to explain that to me, you would have to do so in the terminology of things that you do know. In other words, you would say, well... A unicorn is an imaginary animal, but you t it looks like the horn of this and it has the body of a horse and things like that. You have to use things that you know in order to try to even imagine things you don't know. Well, everybody can think of God. Isn't that amazing? It must be something that we know, something that is absolutely innately within us. And I believe that. I believe everybody over the whole world knows that there's a God. We have to be taught unbelief. Atheism is a religion. It's a religious opinion about God. It is not a scientific fact. The next time an atheist speaks to you about them knowing there is no God, say, have you been everywhere? Have you looked under every rock, behind every star? Perhaps God is hiding. You just haven't seen him. The fact of the matter is, is they don't know. They have faith that there is no God. Atheism is a religion, and I love to tell them that. I hope that you do too. <laughs> the point is, is that I can justify my faith, and they can't theirs. And that's the whole point. 
we need to give a defense for the hope that lies within us as Christians. Well, going on down, excuse me, in this passage about that which is known about God is evident within them, verse 19. Notice, God made it evident to them, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The things that are made, the things that are, the Bible makes arguments for God's existence in the simplest of terms. In Hebrews, it says, every house is built by someone, and the builder and maker of all things is God. Do you know how profoundly simple that statement is? Isn't it amazing? We know houses don't just spring up. They're not the result of seeds that are planted. Oh, look at that beautiful new crop of spring houses on the hillside. We don't know that. They don't come from seeds. Men have to build them. Every house is made by someone. And the builder and maker of all things is God. We know that design demands a designer. And yes, I'm a big one to defend the concept that we know that there is a God by design. But notice, he said, for the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Yes, we know these things are true. And so, to believe it otherwise makes us foolish. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed uh, animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. In other words, he said they had to want to believe something else in order for God to give them over. God gave them enough evidence to produce faith but they chose to ignore that evidence and want to believe something else. And so God will have to give them over. Yes, children are born believing in God, I believe, and they have to be taught unbelief. Don't let other people teach your children unbelief. They know there's a God. You just need to reinforce that belief. Well, here the Bible says that one thing man has always done is made God in his in, in own image. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Now, first of all, there's a little progression here. A lack of thankfulness leads to unbelief. A failure to appreciate leads to unbelief. If you find your faith waning, you need to check your thankfulness. You need to check your prayer life. You need to be grateful and thankful because you don't have to have what you have. We are greatly blessed people. We need to be thankful. Notice what these people continue to do. They change the glory of the incorruptible God. You know, the Bible is quite interesting whenever it speaks about the nature of God. I don't know about you and your reading, but there's certain terminology that I was raised with that I finally figured out what it meant later on. And I hope that you do too. The Bible says God is light and in Him is no variableness of shadow or, you know, and I kind of went, what in the world is going on in this phrase? And thankfully I found out it was a translation issue into our language.
But what it means is, is God is so much light that he doesn't cast a shadow. No man can overshadow God. No man can cast a shadow on God. God is the source of light, and in him is no variation. It means he doesn't cast a shadow. That's amazing. That's amazing to think of God that way, but that's what it is. But we made him like the image of corruptible man. Then bursts and four-footed feasts. You know, all of these passages tell us about the idolatry that exists in the world, how that people are into animism and all kinds of things. They, they worship and they think somehow the creatures on the earth made the earth, I guess. But there's a lot. That's quite a foolish thought. Notice, we have often, whenever you study Greek mythology, all of those characters have human frailties. They have human attitudes, jealousy, envy, hatred, all of them. And we tend to put that on to God. God is not like man, the Bible tells us. He's not like those things that are around us. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Yes, we wanted a God not that we couldn't understand. We want a God that we can understand, a God that's a lot like us. How sad that your God can be put in a box. I think it's so sad that your God can be reduced to being understood. God is beyond that. God is amazing. And he has to struggle, I believe, to try to inform us and teach us about righteousness and holiness and why we shouldn't sin. And we're foolish enough to think God doesn't understand. Oh, he so understands. And he recognizes how immature and how short-sighted that we are. But we want to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We want our own way. And so we seek a God that is very much like us. Very much like us. And that's unfortunate. Man has always made God in his image. Men gave God's human form and human weaknesses and limitation, limitations, the Bible says. You shall not make for yourself, he says in Exodus 20, carved images, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God says, I don't want you practicing idolatry to the children of Israel. Israel has, not, uh, has a very sparse art history because they were not supposed to make images because God knew the temptation was to worship the idea, the imagination that could be thought of by man. And indeed, that is a temptation. But I'm so glad that in the New Testament, we don't have these art restrictions uh, placed upon us but yet, we still have idolatry among us. We still have idolatry because we bow down to things in this world that we want power from, that we want blessings from, that we would like to serve. As Dylan always said, you got to serve somebody. Yes, I'm old. So <laughs> get used to Dylan quotes. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is Yes, we're going to have to serve somebody, 
But is it from heaven or is it of men? Just like the baptism of John. Is it from heaven or is it of men? Well, God says those people who make one like men have to hate him. We are not to look upon God as our equal, like one of our good buddies. We are not to profane our relationship with him by taking him out of his holy place, off of his throne, and make him one of our fishing buddies. You know, I was in a church service one time whenever someone started to lead a prayer, and they said, hello, Dad. And I thought, well, he got the relationship maybe, but he didn't have the honor. And that's not right. And so sometimes people can profane God when we make him far less than what he is. We are not to look upon God as our equal. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Psalm 50, verse 21. He said, here's your problem. You thought I was like you. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I remember whenever I told my mom that. God wants me to be happy. He said, no, he doesn't. He wants me to whip you. And I thought, are you sure? Do you and I know the same God? And then I read Hebrews 12. Evidently, God wants to whip me. He wants to chastise me. The point is, is it's not about me. It's about him who is holy. And God tells me, I don't care what you want. I want you to be holy. And so it's not about us, my friends. God loves us, and we're thankful we have grace but don't ever think that the cross of Christ equals your value. Schumer is wrong. Others are wrong. The cross does not demonstrate my worth. It demonstrates his grace. Don't you ever get deceived into thinking the cross is about you. It's about God. And it's a demonstration of his love and his grace and his concern. It's not about you and I's value. Don't ever equalize the cross to your worth. Don't get deceived into that. That's of men. That's one of the reasons why I got up this lesson. We think it's all about us. It's not. It's about God. You thought I was altogether like you. Psalms 50 and verse 21. Notice, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is a passage that tells us God does love us, and he wants us blessed. And from his perspective, he wants to give us those things that are good things. So, even when we're chastised, we don't question the goodwill of our father. You know, my dad used to always say that, and I never understood it for a while. He says, do you know the reason why I chastise you? It's because I love you. And I went, I wish I had a parent that just kind of didn't like me as much as you do. You know, maybe he should just hate me a little. But no, 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 no. My dad had my goodwill at heart. He needed to see me not get entrapped, entangled in sin. 
It really was an expression of his goodwill toward us that he corrects us, that he humbles us. You see, a lot of times if God doesn't give us what we want, we think, well, God doesn't like me, I guess, that much. No, God loves you. God loves everyone you've ever met. The reason why you're saved isn't because God loves you more. It's because you appreciate what his love is. But everyone you meet, God loves them as much as he loves you. What right do you have to keep the gospel from someone who's lost? You don't. Because God loves him as much as he loves you. And we need to share that knowledge in every place. We need it to be like fragrance in our life. God loves you, but he doesn't like your sin. He needs to forgive you of sin. But God wants you to go to heaven. God desires all men to be saved. One of the greatest anti-Calvinistic verses that exist is God loves all men and desires all men to be saved. That doesn't account for predestination. Never mind. I'm not about doctrine. Let me get back. Chasing rabbits. Notice here. Give good things to those who ask him. God wants us. Sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. But my thoughts, Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, <coughs> nor are uh, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thought. Don't ever be tempted into thinking, well, God just neglected it. Maybe I can improve upon his plan. Right. Really? If you can improve on your God's plan, your God isn't very big. That's a shame. Because the God of the Bible is not a God that forgets anything. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it's probably because of some shortcoming on our part whenever we want God to change to fit our shortcomings. Fathers, bring up your children and nurture instruction, Lord. Don't supplant teaching your children by some other form. You teach your children. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture instruction of the Lord. It's not God's shortcoming. It's ours that we try to compensate for. So God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Notice, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. This is a beautiful passage. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. God says there's some people that just don't get it. They will say, if God doesn't approve of me the way I am, he made me. He made you, but he didn't make you a sinner. That's not the doctrine of God. He gave you free will. And what you make of your own life is your gift back to him, but you can never give it in exchange for your soul. But what you give back to God is your life as a living sacrifice. Hopefully it's wholly devoted to God and his will. Well, let's look at some modern day examples of man making God in his image. Some people think God doesn't keep his word. God is not a man and thus not capable of this shortcoming. I've had many people, they lose their faith whenever prophecies that they thought were going to happen don't happen. Or God didn't give them what they wanted to give. Or they prayed for something and God didn't give them the affirmative. 
I want to tell you a little bit about prayer. God can change his mind. He teaches us in his word. He can change his mind and still keep his eternal will. But he says, the reason why you don't have is because you didn't ask sometimes. Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer to a prayer is later. But like my mother always said, no is an answer. <laughs> it wasn't the answer I wanted, but no is an answer. <laughs> Sometimes God answers prayer and the answer is no. That's right. And, oh, technology. Let's see if it comes back up. Hang on. Slide number 13. Remember that for me just a moment. There we go. God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's go back up to that one. Promise of God. God says, I promise you something. I promise you will not be tempted above that which you're able to bear. But, but with, will the, with will the temptation, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You might say, oh boy, God forgot this time. My friends, no, he didn't forget. He keeps his word. He is faithful. You just have to find the way of escape. And if there is no way of escape, that means God thinks you're able to endure it. That's the truth. We have to find that. We have to face it. God wants me to grow through this. God wants me to, you know, I've talked to a lot of uh, drug abusers in, in my life. I've been with heroin addicts and oh, everything. And guess what? Some of them didn't make it. Some of them did and are leaders in the church today. So don't tell me God's prescriptions don't work. They do work. You just have to trust him. You have to find the way of escape. You have to find what God wants you to do in dealing with that. And that's what we need to do. God is faithful. He's keeping his end. But you've got to look for the way of escape. God doesn't forget Hebrews 6 and verse 10 as well. <laughs> uh, let's, let's just read it. Hebrews 10. Notice what he says here. 6 and verse 10. That's what I said. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. And having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. And we desire each of you show the same diligence as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. God is not unjust to forget what you've done. You know, don't, don't ever think God forgot. forgot. God, you forgot. I was, I, I've been faithful to you. Why aren't you faithful to me here? Don't, don't do that. Don't question God's faithfulness or that God doesn't know or understands. God's will cannot be hindered. By man. That's right. We've got to trust. Look at the entire story of Job. At the end of his life, he was blessed more than, you, more than ever. 
But Job trusted God through the whole thing. He said, even if he slays me, yet I will serve him. And that's where we need to be. We need to trust him, even if it means our death. Where does God say in the word of God that Christians don't die? He doesn't say that. In fact, he says those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So sometimes that's what we go through to, in order to understand what Christ went through, in order to help us be merciful to the other brethren, in order for us to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the love of Christ. We have all of these things happen to us and we can learn from them, but you never question God. That's what Job learned. Don't question him in that. God's will cannot be hindered by man. Well, secondly, a common idea that I find that is a temptation to us is that we think God is mellowed with age. Sometimes we think of God as an old person, all gray and everything. I think it's because our Bibles are old and the pictures in them are old. And we think, well, God's old and he's just, he's just kind of an indulgent grandparent. No, he's not. I am an indulgent grandparent. I know, <laughs> and it's not him. That's the whole point. They are different. But don't think that's God. For I am the Lord. I do not change. It doesn't mean God doesn't change his mind. It means God doesn't change his morals. God doesn't change his ethics. God changes his mind often, but he doesn't change about what's right and what's wrong. If it was wrong yesterday, it'll be wrong tomorrow. And so that's what the whole point is. You are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Don't think that God has mellowed with age. If you do, that's a lie of Satan. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13 and 8. We had one whole topic on this this year. Is, it, is God universalist? Is he going to save everybody at the end? He's just going to get there and he's going to go, oh, you know what? I just love everybody so much. I love the whole world. Therefore, I'm going to save the whole world. I'm just going to change my mind and save everybody. No, God desires to save everybody. But there's a lot of people that are going to be lost because they won't accept the gift of grace that's offered to them. Yes, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, Titus 2.11. But Hebrews 5 and 9 says, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them. All them? Yeah, all them who obey Him. You have to accept the gift in order, or else it's unreceived. If I give you a gift and you don't open it, are you enjoying that present? No, the gift of grace is offered, but a lot of men don't want to unwrap the package. Oh, that's work. Never mind. I don't want to get off. But that's a lot of times what they do. My baptism doesn't equal the cross of Christ either. You know, that's the whole point. It's where God told me to obey him. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. James 1 17. There's no shot. God doesn't cast a shadow. God is the source of life. God, you can't overshadow God. God can be fooled. Number three, that's another way we make God in our image. God sees and knows everything. Proverbs, I'm not going to get a chance to read all these today, but I want you to write them down. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. God's eyes are in every place. Hebrews 4, 13. These are passages that teach that God is omniscient. God is everywhere present. There's some people that think that God is everywhere except in a Christian, and that's not right. God is everywhere. There is never a place too deep. There's a, Jonah found out there's never a place too deep in the ocean where God is not. 
And even though you fly in space at near the speed of light, you can't get away from God. God's presence is always there. God is always everywhere, and you can't escape from Him. God sees and knows everything. God can't be fooled. God sees through all games and tricks we try to play on ourselves. Oh, no, let's lie to the Holy Spirit. Tell Him we only sold the land for this much. No. God knew. God knew they were lying. Okay, God sees what's on our heart. First Samuel, he knows the thoughts and the intents from afar, the Bible says. God is a personal. I don't understand how God can be a personal God with everybody in the world all at once. But he is. Whenever I pray, it's as if I'm the only one praying. And God hears me. And God hears you. Listen, young ones. When you pray, God hears you personally. He listens to you. Every thought and every intent of your heart, God knows. God is a personal God. But just because He's personal doesn't mean, doesn't mean He doesn't know what's actually going on. If you're trying to justify your sin, if you're trying to justify others' sins, if you're trying to cast blame on your mother or your father, your friends and everybody else is the reason why you do that sin. There's no reason that can justify your sin. You have to stand up. You have to resist Satan and let him flee from you. God knows what's in your heart. Well, God can, cannot be bribed. Well, we think we can. We think we can bribe him. There's many people in this world today that think that when they get to judgment, they're going to exchange all their good works in exchange for disobedience to God. They think he can be bribed. Lord, look at all of what I did for you. Isn't that enough? God goes, no. Had nothing to do. Even if you gain the whole world, you can't give it in exchange for your soul. Can't do it. Good deeds cannot make God overlook your sin. You need that sin forgiven. You need to have it washed away. You need to have it gone. Don't try to buy grace. Try to receive grace through repentance and getting cleansed, having your sins washed away in baptism, having sins forgiven, Acts 2.38, through obedience to God. We are to, to behold both the goodness and the severity of God. God is many-faceted. Don't make him one or two-dimensional. God has many facets. God can be understanding and still require of us repentance. And he does. God just wants me to be happy. No. God wants us to love him. Put him first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Be reconciled to him. Come out from the world and be separate, the Bible tells us. This is what God wants from us. And he wants us to abstain from evil. That's the basic premise of a Christian life. There's a lot of people willing to praise God as long as he doesn't ever say, repent. But yet God says repent even when we're by ourselves and alone. He knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. He knows whenever we have malice. He knows when we're jealous. He knows when we're envious and covetous. He knows our hearts, brethren. 
And therefore, we need to recognize God knows everything and he wants us to abstain from evil thoughts and evil desires as well as evil actions. That's right. God is out to get me. There are some people who love to blame this. This is the reason why. I had one guy in, in Australia whenever I was there. He came up to me. He says, I'm not going to come to church. I said, why? He says, well, if God didn't want me to lust after women, he should have made them so beautiful. I said, oh, back the truck up here. Are you blaming God for your lust? I said, you can't do that. God gave you eyes, but he didn't give you the eyes to lust with. He didn't give you eyes to covet with. He didn't give you hands to steal. He didn't give you feet to run to do evil. He didn't do a lot. God gave you a lot of things, but don't blame God when you use it to sin. You need to look away from evil. You need to close your eyes, the Bible says, to evil. That's right. God is not out to get you. He's out to teach you self-control. Self-control is one of the major reasons why Christianity, the, the truth in Christianity isn't like today because men don't like to be responsible for their behavior. It's the culture. It's you. It's mom and dad. It's my teachers. It's the society. It's everybody's fault, but not mine. That is the big cry of this generation. I want you to know if you don't go to heaven, it's nobody else's fault. It's not your mom's, it's not your dad's, it's not your culture, it's not your genes. It's not that everybody has stuff that you don't have. It's not anybody else's fault. You need to stop sinning in your heart. You need to give your heart to God. God doesn't fly off in a blind rage. God is no respecter of persons. That, that phrase is really better translated. God is not prejudged or God is not someone who is prejudiced or God is not someone who, um, oh, what's the word? I had it in my head. It's in New American Standard. So anyway, just look at it. <laughs> this is New King James. But anyway, it means God is not partial. There it is. God is not partial. You know, when people talk to me about race, they say, well, you're race just because you were born white, or you were born black, or you were born brown, or anything else. I like Vody Buckman. He said, there is only one color. We just have different amounts of melanin. I like that. There's only one color. And he says, Never mind, I won't quote Bodie Buckman. The whole point I'm getting at is God is not a respecter of persons. That's right. God still loves you no matter what, man or woman. Yes, God's binary. And God loves you and wants you to go to heaven. But he's not going to force you to go if you don't want to go. If you want to hate, if you want to be jealous, envious, covetous, anything else, no. God is not one to show partiality and he cannot be bribed. God wants everyone to be saved, including you. 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4. That's your memory verse for today, by the way. I give every, every time I give a sermon, I give a memory verse. Notice 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4 is your memory verse. There will be a test. 
And if you don't get it, you're going to get baptized again. No, I'm just kidding. The whole point is, is he says here, look, God desires all men to be saved. Next time they tell you God doesn't want me to be saved, yes, God wants you to be saved. God desires everyone to be saved. God takes no pleasure in the punishment of sinners. The Bible says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. God does love us. He's so great to serve. There are so many people who quit worshiping him in spirit and truth because of something some Christian did, some Christian said, something somebody did something to them, and they take it out on the Lord. That doesn't make any sense. I didn't come here to worship you. I didn't come here to worship the church. I came to worship him who shed his blood for me, who offered his body as a sacrifice for me, and I came here this morning for him. You're a byproduct. Don't take that personal. I like a lot of you, but that's not why I worshiped here today. I worship here because you worship him in spirit and truth. Let's put first things first. Let's make sure God gets the glory, okay? God takes no pleasure in the punishment of sinners. I've talked to homosexuals before in the church, by the way. It's kind of ironic. 20 years ago, whenever I came to Oklahoma, I was leaving California, and I thought, well, I'm going to get out of counseling people in homosexuality and drug abuse. Got to Oklahoma, guess who I canceled? <laughs> Within the first six months, I had three People in the church tell me they had homosexual problems and they wanted to know what God's answer was to that. And you may be suffering, you may be struggling this morning with a sin that you think nobody else has. Don't lie to yourself. Every desire God gave man can be used in a sinful way. Every single one. We have different problems learning how to control those thoughts how to control the temptations for sin. But don't tell me God doesn't love you and want to see you saved. I've seen a lot of people come out of homosexual lifestyle, and I've seen some stay in it. But don't tell me God made me this way. He did not. He did not. God takes no pleasure in punishing anyone, and don't think that he does. God will not send anyone to hell. God's love, they say. God's righteous and just, but God holds man accountable. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, every work will be brought into judgment. There is a day of judgment. Why tell man to repent if there isn't a day of judgment? If you were born that way, if you were predestined that way, why is God having a day of judgment for his own will if God made you that way? It's not God's problem, guys. God gave every single one of us free will. And God's going to hold us accountable for our choices. And that's why there's a day of judgment. So, stop blaming everybody. Start repenting. God holds man accountable for his sin. Sin will be punished with eternal torment, the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Don't make the mistake of making God 
in man's image. By thinking God doesn't keep his word, God is mellowed with age, God can be fooled, God can be bribed, God just wants me to be happy. I don't like to serve a God that says repent. I want a God that gives good gifts to his children and I just want to get. How self-centered. God just wants me to be happy. God is out there to get me. No, he isn't. He may want you to repent. He may allow you to go through some problems until you make up your mind to look for the way of escape. But God will not send anyone to hell. Hell, yes, he was. Actually, God wants us to be made in the image of his son. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed according to the knowledge of the image of him who created him. And by the way, there's a more difficult passage than this in the book of Ephesians where he says he wants us to attain the measure of the stature that belongs to Jesus. Now, that's a hard word. That's a hard phrase to get into our language. Yeah, it is difficult. But basically what it means is, is Jesus was the full stature of the righteousness of God. And he wants us to attain his image. He wants us to be conformed to his image. He wants us, in the New Testament uses the word, to be imitators of him. To follow in his steps. My friends, you can be a Christian and not be following in the steps of Jesus. I want to challenge you today. If that's your form of Christianity, you don't have the right kind of Christianity. The kind of Christianity Jesus brought was one where we're conformed to the image of Jesus. We share his attitudes towards sin. We share his attitudes toward others. We share his desire for God, his Father, to be glorified in all things. God wants us to behave as Jesus did behave. Notice, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There you go. Philippians 2.5. My little children, notice how Paul says this, and he uses a woman in labor with children. And he, he's talking to the Galatians, and he says, it's like I'm giving birth to you all over again. That was a pain. I'd rather deal with you as children. Notice, my little children for whom I'm again in labor and birth until Christ is formed in you. He says, don't you get it? I'm having to labor with you. It's like I'm in labor until you finally get it. Christ is to be formed in you. Are you acting like Christ? I don't know how Christ would act. Start reading. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read it. Find out what Jesus was like. And then imitate it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Until Christ is formed in you. Well, lesson's yours today. It was a little different kind of lesson. <laughs> but I really believe it's important. I wanted to challenge you this morning to redefine the kind of religion that you have. Christianity is where people try to learn how Jesus would behave and imitate that. To have his heart, to have, look at sin the same way he does. To look at others the same way he does. To care about what is righteous and unrighteous. To try to search and find out 
exactly what it takes to please Him. Because we're not just interested in the law of Christ, we're interested in just pleasing Him. All God has to do is give me a hint that that's what He wants. Now, for those of you who are married, you know what that's like. When your wife gives you a hint, you try to keep it in your mind. You're going to go, oh, I found out she likes that flower. She likes this. So you keep that and you kind of go, now I'm going to spring it on her. I did that to my wife for a long time. Until finally one day she came to me with her sinuses all plugged up. Would you stop sending me flowers? They're killing me. I don't like flowers. Guess what her love language was? <laughs> the deeds of service. I said, oh, so you want me to wash the pans? She goes, oh, there is nothing more sexy than a man who washes the dishes. I said, you have lost your mind. But you know what? If you know my wife, you know that's what. <laughs> she, I am no greater man than when I'm washing dishes. <laughs> I don't know what your love language is, but I know that all of them are toward God, too. God likes it not whenever we just sing it, but when we live it, when we really do try to have his heart and his mind, whenever we try to care for people that don't give us any reason to care about them because he does. The church doesn't need another evangelism course. What it needs is the heart of Christ for the lost. The church needs the heart of Christ. We need to care about others. We need to look out for one another. We need to be brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers to everyone in the body of Christ and bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Wow. When we care, we work at imitating Jesus. So I'm here to challenge you. If your ritualistic religion isn't doing good, if the rules and regulations, it just isn't working for you, try putting on the mind of Christ. Try putting on the heart of Christ. And that'll lead you back to the word where you'll discover how Christ feels about things, how he behaved and obeyed his father when he wanted to and when he didn't. When it was convenient, when it wasn't. In good season and bad season, he wanted to do the Father's will. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, it's not my will that this cup pass me by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There you go. That's how you know you love the Lord. When you're willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. So, you ready to obey the Lord? He doesn't want just a few words. He wants all of you. One last thing. I had an atheist friend. I, in fact, I've got a whole series of lessons based on this statement. It said, if there is a God, if there is no God, he was thinking, if there is no God, Nothing matters. If there is a God, nothing else matters. If there's a God this morning, if Jesus is who he claims to be, 
He is worthy of your total sacrifice. Even though after he summed up your life, it may be just filthy rags. I don't care. The whole point, he is worthy of everything you have. He is worthy of, worthy of your energy, of your heart, of your body, your soul, and your mind. He is worthy of you in a whole fashion. Don't give him part. Give him the whole thing. Are you ready for that? That's Christianity. Oh, you can find it cheaper someplace else, but you're not going to find the real thing is here. The real thing is you become a living sacrifice. You become a living sacrifice. You come repenting of your sin, of your life. You confess that Jesus Christ is Son of God. Then you die to yourself. You're buried with him in baptism. And then you're raised to walk in newness of life. That's wonderful. As Bahofner says in his book about the cost of discipleship, he says, Jesus bids you come and die. Oh, man, he had it right. Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. My friends, I beg, we need to rediscover authentic Christianity, and that's it. Jesus bids you come and die. Don't accept any cheap substitute. Don't make God in your image. Serve him who is greater than everything, who loves you more than life itself. Find something worth dying for and then live for it. Jesus wants you to get up off that table of sacrifice and live for him. Nevertheless, I live yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. Are you ready to do that? Then come while we stand and sing.